song with a great reminder of God's perfect will and his perfect way. So if you have the Bible with you, open up to the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 9, looking at this incredible passage about how the man was born blind as hill. And we've enjoyed already several weeks here. We've got a few more to go just yet. But today we'll be looking at John chapter 9, verses 18 through 34. And I've entitled this message this morning, Give Glory to God. Give Glory to God. John chapter 9, we'll start at verses 18 and read down to verse 34. The Jews did not believe what, that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. Father, we bow our heads before you this morning. And we pray that you would enlighten this text. Your word, O oh God, to bring us perspective today, to bring us hope today, and to bring us deep conviction today that we would proclaim Jesus as the Christ. Help us today, God, as we continue in this narrative, that we would learn many things from this chapter in a way that would change us and shape us and mold us to be more faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. The Christian movie, God's Not Dead, was the surprise film of the year in 2014. The movie was made on a $2 million budget and was not expected to do all that well. Defying all odds, this film remained for 20 weeks in the box office. And amazingly, this movie, which received primarily negative reviews from the media, grossed over $64 million. Dollars. The plot of this movie was about how Josh, a Christian college student, enrolls in a philosophy class taught by the unbelieving Professor Radisson. Professor Radisson was a diehard atheist who required that his students were to sign a declaration entitled, God is Dead, in order to pass the class. Josh was the only student who refused to sign and ensuing debate follows that will take place in the last 20 minutes of the next three class sessions. The students in the class will decide the winner. In the first session, Josh presents his evidence that God created the universe. In the second session, Josh argues that macroevolution is not as solid of a theory that is usually presented. And in the first two sessions, Professor Radisson has some counter-arguments for some of Josh's points. Ultimately, it comes down to the third and final debate between Professor Radisson and Josh, who again both make compelling points. Josh then halts his line of debate to pose a question to Professor Radisson. 
Why do you hate God? And after Josh repeats the question twice more, the professor explodes in rage, confirming that he hates God for his mother's death that left him alone despite all of his prayers. Josh then casually asks Professor Radisson, how can he hate someone who does not exist? At that moment, a student stands up and says, God's not dead. Almost the entire class follows suit, and Professor Radisson walks out of the classroom in defeat. This 21st century Christian drama reminds me, in some ways, of the drama taking place in the first century with this man who was born blind. Now, fully seeing, this man has a full-on debate with the religious authorities of his day. The Jews, who did not believe that Jesus or that this man was truly killed, tried to ridicule this man and his parents. And the authorities had already agreed that if anyone should confess that Jesus is the Christ, then they would be put out of the synagogue. The unbelieving Jews wanted this man to give glory to God by agreeing with them that Jesus is a sinner. But instead, the man who was blind gives glory to God by stating whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know, but one thing I do know, I was blind. But now, I see. And all throughout our culture today, authorities would like for you and for me to denounce Christ. Politicians and celebrities and professors and public universities would love for you to discredit Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life. Oh, that if you would just have some kind of generic faith, that might be okay. But if you have a specific faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who demands your total allegiance, who alone has the authority to declare what is morally right and morally wrong, and who will not yield to any other power, whether it be a person or a popular consensus of our culture, then you will be persecuted. If you believe that Jesus is alive, if you believe that he makes a difference in your life, and if you believe that your whole being belongs to him and you follow him and obey him, you will be cast out. This man was put out of the synagogue just as Christians today are being put out of the conversation, out of the place of respect, out of the place of influence. And eventually we may be put out of our churches and be put out of our religious freedoms. But that's okay. Because by God's grace, at least we can see. By God's grace, He has opened our eyes. By God's grace, we have something greater to live for. We're going to give glory to God, not by agreeing with this world, but by affirming that the Scriptures are true. We're going to give glory to God, not by caving in to cultural pressure, but by offering our lives as a living sacrifice. We're going to give glory to God not by being disciples of the pop culture, but by being devoted worshipers of a God who loves, a God who cares, and a God who is changing us every day more and more into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Well, this morning, I want to give you three headings from this passage that will help us truly give glory to God. It's there for you in your bulletin and outline. If you'd like to follow along, you'll see these three headings go like this. Number one, let's first look at the unbelief of the Jews. In your first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, simply says, unbelief denies the clear truth. Look at verse 18 with me, if you will. Just the first little part there, verse 18, the first half, says the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. So what we're looking at here is the, the idea of unbelief. That these Pharisees, these Jews, were filled with unbelief. And when you're filled with unbelief, you deny things that are true. It was the neighboring Jews that had already gone to this man and asked him how his eyes were open. And the man told them that Jesus had made mud, anointed his eyes, and instructed him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash. 
And the Jews now bring him to the authorities to verify this fact. And I told you last week that the reason for that was is that they were supposed to see that if this man indeed was seeing, then this was a fulfillment of a messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5. And what the authorities should have done is like, oh my goodness, this guy who was blind from birth can now see the Messiah's here. This is a fulfillment of messianic prophecy. That's what they should have been doing. But instead, they began to debate whether it was right or not for this guy to be healed on a Sabbath. And before they even really get into that, they just deny it altogether. They say, we don't believe you. We don't believe that you were blind and that you can now see. We're not going to go along with this. We're, we're not going to believe that this would happen. And not only that, because it also happened on the Sabbath. And so they're very upset about all of this uh, situation, and they just start to try to deny the clear truth. Instead of seeing the clear truth of this miracle, the Pharisees are divided over whether or not this could have or should have even happened on a Sabbath. It was a complete diversion from what should have been happening. What they should have been doing is rejoicing in messianic prophecy fulfilled. Instead, they stooped down into further spiritual darkness because of their worship of man-made Sabbath regulations. You see, the Pharisees thought that since Jesus spit on the ground and made some mud and that he placed that on the man's eyelids and told him to go wash that he was breaking the Sabbath. Now keep in mind, there is no Sabbath regulation in the Bible that prevents you from doing these things. These are extra man-made Sabbath regulations added by the Pharisees and that's what they're attacking him for because in their mind, they had added to Scripture other laws that they put on par with scripture when Jesus broke those other laws now they accuse him of breaking the Sabbath therefore this miracle could not have happened because it went against their man-made laws unbelief always denies the truth common sense tells us that the truth speaks for itself we could say that the truth is evident for all to see we could say that the truth is never hidden but put out there in plain open with no apologies and no fear. But the irony of this whole story of John 9 is that the blind man who was physically blind and can now see is alive and well spiritually. But the Pharisees who can physically see are blind spiritually and they can't see a thing. They can't even see the Messiah right in front of their face because they're spiritually blind. Now the way that the Pharisees are processing all of this as we've been looking here at John 9, you could equivocate to the idea of they're using a syllogism. A syllogism is a kind of logical argument that applies deductive reasoning to arrive at a conclusion based on two or more propositions that are both assumed to be true. It works kind of like this. You have a major proposition that makes a general statement that you assume is true. Then you have a minor proposition that says a more specific statement. So after you examine the major statement and the minor statement, you come up with a conclusion in logic that's called a syllogism. Let me give you an example. Syllogism could go like this. All men are mortal. It's a major premise. It's a general statement. All men are mortal. I am a man. So that is a minor premise or a specific statement. Therefore, I am mortal. Make sense? All men are mortal. I am a man. Therefore, I am mortal. That's how a syllogism works. And in the eyes of the Pharisees, it could be that they're thinking of it something like this. All people who are from God keep the Sabbath. That's just what godly people do. All people, if this guy's from God, he's got to keep the Sabbath. But guess what? The minor premise is Jesus is not keeping the Sabbath, at least not in their mind. Therefore, Jesus is not from God. This is how their reasoning is going. All men from God keep the Sabbath. Jesus is not keeping the Sabbath. Therefore, Jesus cannot be from God. Their logic continues to decline. They, they might even apply a syllogism this way. Blind beggars cannot be healed and should not be trusted. And we're just not going to believe what this guy says. He says he's blind. He can say, we don't believe you. Why? Because blind beggars cannot be healed and should not be trusted. This man says he was blind and can see. Therefore, he's a liar. We don't believe him because this can't happen. Blind beggars cannot be healed, and we shouldn't listen to him. This man claims that he was healed and can see, therefore we will not believe him. This is the way that human logic works today, and there's flaws in human logic, and it happens all the time. Somebody may say, for example, spiritual things are not real. 
right? Supernatural is not real. We live in a materialistic society. We don't really believe in the supernatural. So somebody may say supernatural things are not real. But the Bible tells us that God supernaturally created the world in six days. Therefore, the Bible is wrong. That's how the syllogism works in today's mindset. Or you might say people are not raised from the dead. The Bible says Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. Therefore, the Bible is wrong. You follow what we're saying here? This is how this works. People make the wrong assertions based on their blinded spiritual perspective, and therefore they deny the clear truth. And the truth is God did create the world in six days, and Jesus did really uh, was risen from the dead, but unbelief denies these clear truths, and therefore uh, they don't even believe in the 500 witnesses who saw the resurrected Christ. But only, only God can open the eyes of those who are spiritually blind. But by the way, the way to reverse that is not to use a spiritual syllogism and say somehow now we're going to one-up you with our syllogism. No, no, no. It's got to be a divine work of God. It's got to be a work of grace. Only God can open the eyes of the lost and the blind so that we can see God in all of his glory through creation and then more specifically through the special revelation of the scripture that we can see that the pointers lead us to Christ. And that we can see him only if God gives the grace to allow us to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you another blank here. Unbelief searches for another explanation. So not only does unbelief just flat out deny the truth, unbelief then searches for another explanation to explain by which what happened. Look at the second part of chapter 9, verse 18, when it says, you know, they don't believe that he received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. Since the Jews chose not to believe the man's testimony, they turned to his parents. They're obviously looking for other answers. Maybe his parents will tell us something more about this situation. Maybe his parents will tell us that their son was not truly blind. Or maybe his parents would say, this is not our son. Or maybe his parents would give us some kind of an out. Maybe the neighbors were mistaken about the man's identity and possibly they have the wrong man. So first, unbelief denies the truth. And then it immediately searches for other ways to explain what happened. You remember the documentary maybe that also came out in 2011, a few years back by Ben Stein, when he was trying to talk about the idea of maybe having an intelligent designer. And in this documentary, he interviewed several world's leading scientists, including Richard Dawkins, and he would ask them, how did life begin? How did life really start? And they would answer all these questions. He said, no, how did it really start? How did life begin? And when Stein pressed them on those, uh, that question, how did life begin, the, the scientists, including Richard Dawkins, offered two theories. In other words, they deny the truth, of creation and the scripture God created, and instead they try to explain it another way. And there are two theories that they would propose. One was is that life began on the backs of crystals. And when they try to explain that, you know, he's like, explain what you mean. It's like, well, there's a lot of mutations that can happen with crystals. And so if you have crystals and mutations and all these mutations work together, all of a sudden life came out. And you're like, okay, can you give me any more? And they said, well, if it's not on the back of crystals, then we think it was Martians. No kidding. This is what they say in the film. We think it was aliens. We think that life maybe began on another planet somewhere and advanced so much to the degree that those creatures on other planets created human beings or created some type of life that evolved into human beings here on this planet. And when you kind of hear them, I mean, it just sounds so ludicrous. You're like, your best explanation of how life began is either on the backs of crystals or we came from aliens. That's all you got? And yet it shows how illogical that unbelief goes. Not only does unbelief deny the flat-out truth, unbelief will search for any means to explain what is other than to come to the truth. Another thing that we can learn here is the idea that unbelief also tries to intimidate others. Unbelief tries to intimidate others others. Here's what we see here in verse 19, and ask them, so this is the Pharisees again asking the parents, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Now again, they're 
becoming, they're going to be becoming in this passage here a little bit overbearing, starting to ask very direct questions of the parents to hold them accountable. In fact, here's the three questions they asked the parents in verse 19. Number one, is this your son? Number two, was he born blind? Number three, how can he now see? And what we're going to see here is in verses 20 through 23 that the parents answer the first two questions, but they will not answer the last one. They will not answer the question, how can he now see? And the reason for this is found in verse 22. Go ahead and skip down and look at verse 22 that says, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And so they were afraid that this could happen. This is an act of intimidation by the Pharisees. This is not allowing free thinking, free talking, good dialogue, you believe what you believe, I believe what I believe. No, no, if you believe these certain things, they're intimidating the parents saying, we're going to kick you out of the synagogue. This is a power play by those in authority. This is an example of lording over the people. This is a clear anti-Christian tactic. If you say you believe that Jesus is the Christ, then we will put you out. So why are these Jews walking in such darkness? Why are so many people today walking in unbelief? Well, the Bible says in John 3, 17 through 20, that is because unbelievers love the darkness more than they love the light. Do you remember John 3, 17? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed." In case you just think it's only an intellectual debate here, what the Bible tells us is what's really going on is that unbelievers like their sin. It could be the sin of pride. It could be the sin of power. It could be the sin of any immorality. And they like their sin so much, they're not willing to give all that up to bow the knee to Christ. And because they're unbelievers, they're willing to believe a lie. That's what's happening here. They, they want to believe a lie, whatever it takes. They will not believe the truth. This is why the Jews came up with things like the swoon theory, the thought that Jesus never really died, the idea that the person the disciples claimed to be the resurrected Christ just looked similar to Jesus but wasn't really Jesus. This is why they said that the, that the disciples stole the body of Jesus, and that was the, what they paid the, the, the guards to say. I mean, unbelief constantly searches for other explanations, and in this way, unbelief is a lie. Instead of pointing to the truth that is obvious for all to see, unbelief covers the truth, and it points to a lie. And our job as Christians is to observe the truth to proclaim the truth, to live in the truth, to never apologize for the truth, and to thank God that he's given us the opportunity to believe. And it's not just based on facts. The facts are there. They're apparent for us to see. It's based on the work of the Spirit of God. It's based on the work of you in your own heart and mind saying, my sin no longer is what is most important to me. What's most important to me is to find the light of Jesus Christ. It's realizing that your sin is always a dead end. It never brings true joy. It will never give you lasting happiness. And it's at some point as the Spirit of God convicts a man and a woman and says you can't do it on your own anymore and God will do whatever it takes to get you to the end of your rope so that you can see all you have is Christ and he's all that you need. And he begins to turn the light on so that you can walk in faith and walk in the truth and walk in the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we're seeing here these Pharisees are just hanging on. They're just hanging on. They will not change. They will not be budged. And so that's the unbelief of the Pharisees. But let's look secondly at the fear of the parents. The fear of the parents, your next blank here says, fear can silence you when you should speak up. Fear can silence you when you should speak up. So they come to the parents, verse 20, his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, 
nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. And so as we've discussed, the Pharisees were trying to intimidate the blind man's parents, and the parents answered by saying, hey, look, this is our son, and he was born blind. So they answered the first two questions very clearly. So this is, in some ways, this is not helping the Pharisees at all. First, they just wanted to deny it. Then they go to the parents, hoping somehow the parents will deny it. Instead, the parents affirm at least two things. This is our son, and he was born blind, but they will not answer the third question. And the third question, again, is how did this happen? In other words, if you say Jesus healed him and somehow give credence to Jesus is from God, thus saying he's the Christ, we'll put you out. And so the, the uh, parents are not willing to speak up to that. So they're afraid. And their fear leads to silence. And in one sense, my heart goes out to these parents who have now been brought into the limelight of this whole ridiculous situation. Remember, really, the whole situation is about why was it done on the Sabbath? It, it might not even be in so much focused on why can he see now as the fact that it really stirred up the hornet's nest by the fact it happened on the Sabbath, which was just another diversion. But the parents are now put on the witness stand, and all they really offer is the answer again to the first questions, and it kind of, in some ways, I would say it hurt the Pharisees' efforts to discredit the miracle. The parents say, this is our son, he was born blind, and they also affirm he now sees. But how he sees and who opened his eyes, we do not know. Now, I, I believe that the parents are actually lying about this, and the reason I believe that the parents are lying about this is because of that parentheses of verse 22 that kind of says the reason they answered the way they answered is because they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. And so I, I think that just, again, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, making a statement here that's not clear in Scripture, but I think we could read between the lines and kind of get the sense that what likely happened was that the son ran home after his eyes were opened because throughout this narrative, we're seeing a couple of days in progression here, that he likely ran home and he told his parents exactly what happened. I mean, what else would a blind man do? I mean, he would want to go to his mom and his dad. This blind man had never seen green grass. He'd never seen the blue sky. He had never seen the faces of the parents who raised him. I, I guarantee you this guy most likely went home and told his parents everything, but out of fear, the parents simply will not speak up. Their testimony is cautious and hesitant. Their testimony is partial and incomplete. Their testimony is safe and risk-free. They will tell some of what they know, but they will not tell all of what they know. And aren't we sometimes placed in the same predicament when we are given an opportunity to point the conversation to Christ, we at times, out of fear, stop short. Don't we? Isn't it true that at times we see an avenue we could take and we just say, you know, I'm not going to go down that path because I'm not sure if I'm willing to face the consequences of that right now. And so not only can fear silence you when you should speak up, but the second bullet point here says fear can paralyze you when you focus on the consequences. It's like at this moment, all they can think about is what verse 22 says. They said these things, why? Because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Christ, uh, Jesus to be the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. And so we see the parents are afraid. They're afraid of excommunication that they would receive from the synagogue. Literally, the word here in the original language means to be de-synagogued. That's what's going to happen. They're going to be de-synagogued. The parents would be banished. They would be expelled. They would be excluded from the opportunity to worship in the synagogue. And not only would they be locked out of the synagogue, but we also understand that they would be shunned from all social events. I mean, they're living in a Hebrew society. They're, they're living in an area where it's not only about your faith, but it affects you socially, economically. Every part of your being would be impacted by you if you got excommunicated. They, they would have all economic ties to Jewish business partnerships completely severed. This means this decision would have far-reaching ramifications on them religiously, socially, and economically. Now think about it. For a moment, here in America, we have prided ourselves for so long on the privilege of religious freedom. 
where you could believe one thing and your business typically has still ran pretty well. You could believe one thing and socially you're somewhat still part of the community, but we're getting to the days in our land to where if you stand with Christ, not only will you be mocked for your faith, but you will face severe social and economic loss as well. I'm warning you, it's coming. Right? We're already seeing this, right? Look at all the cake makers and florists who have lawsuits against them for simply supporting Christian values. California, our great state, is on the verge of trying to pass legislation that would outlaw Christian books on morality. Christian schools and churches are being threatened with losing their 5013 status. I'm telling you, this is coming to a church near you. This is coming to a home near you. And what are we going to do? What are we going to do, Pastor Rita, when we're threatened if we just preach the gospel to not only have our religious liberties removed, but to be socially and economically ostracized? What are we going to do? What are you going to do, Christian, as an individual? Well, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to stand with Christ. And we will not flinch in this age of persecution. And we will not cower to the culture. And we will not budge even if we're beaten. And we will stand with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will fight in his army. I have people calling me from around the country. Hey, we hear in California that you can't preach the gospel anymore or counsel in your counseling center anymore without being maybe uh, taken to jail. I'm like, bring it on. I might tell them to come on, come on to my door, right? And I'm not, I mean, in some ways, I'm not trying to pick a fight, right? But in other ways, I'm just going to keep doing what I've always been doing. I mean, this is what Daniel did, right? He just kept praying three times a day with his windows open towards heaven. And that's what we're going to do. That's what I'm going to do as your pastor. That's what our elder teams are going to do as elders. Are you going to stand with us? You say, Adam, you sound like, you know, you're getting all political and making me nervous. Look, I'm trying to get you ready. I'm, I'm trying to, that's my job, right? I mean, in Ezekiel, he got all over the shepherds for not warning the people that they need to repent, be cleansed, and hold tight to the truth because bad days are ahead. At the same time, we know that we don't have to be ultimately afraid because our hope and our security is not in economics or social status. Praise God. All the churches that cave, that's what their hope is in. Oh, we, we want to keep the giving up and tax-deductible gifts, and we want to be thought of as nice in the culture, so we'll affirm this and approve this and do this, and we'll just kind of mold and shift and change and evolve with the times. Well, not us. We're going to stand with the Word of God from now on until forevermore, and I'm telling you, don't let fear paralyze you from being a witness for Christ. What an opportunity for us to be courageous what an opportunity for us to exercise our Christian faith as we continue to walk in the light of Christ. It's our turn. It's our opportunity to not bow down. And so there's one more thing that fear can do to you is fear can cause you to shift the responsibility to others. Look at verse 23 where the parents said, well, he is of age, ask him. Now, again, my heart goes out a little bit to the parents. I'm just saying, though, they are punting here. Okay, the parents decide to pass the buck. The parents shift the privilege and responsibility of telling the truth to their son. The parents balk. The parents drop the ball. The parents fumble. The parents fade into the background, never to be seen or heard of in this story again. That is what fear can do to a person as a result of their fear. They turn their son over to the pharisaical wolves, saying, he is of age, ask him. Fear is a paralyzing foe, an intimidating enemy. It can cause us to be silent when we know we ought to speak. It can cause us to lie down when we know that we need to stand up. It can cause us to turn our backs on those we love. It can even lead us to deny the light that we see with our eyes, know in our mind, and feel in our heart. Fear is a great thief it robbed these parents of the joy of their own son's miraculous healing. And it can rob you of the precious gift of Jesus Christ and of salvation as well. Don't forget Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Let's not fear man. 
let's fear God. Now that we've seen unbelief of the Jews, the fear of the parents, let's take a couple of moments and look at the conviction of the blind man. Verses 24 through 25 here, we're going to read about how conviction never wavers. Your next blank, conviction never wavers in the midst of opposition. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Conviction never wavers in the midst of opposition. They come back to him for a second time. This is because this man has already explained this before. The Pharisee's agenda is to point to this blind man and tell him, you need to point to God instead of pointing to Christ. When they say, the Pharisees, when they say give glory to God, they're most likely saying that it would glorify God to say that he healed you, not, don't, don't say that Jesus healed you, okay? Can you just do it that way? You can just say give glory to God saying it was all about God, not at all about Christ. That's the plea that they're making. It's as if they're saying to him, stop lying by telling everyone that Jesus healed you and give glory to God instead. This is the same way that Joshua gave instructions to Achan back in Joshua 7 when Achan had stolen the spoils of war and buried them under his tent. When the lot fell on Achan, Joshua approached him and said, my son, give glory to God of Israel and let me now see what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Joshua 7, 19. So some say that in a similar way, they're trying to approach this man and say, give glory to God and stop trying to mess things up by pointing to Christ. How is it that the Pharisees know? Isn't it interesting? Well, we know this man's a sinner. Well, how do they know he's a sinner? Well, most likely it was because of the various blasphemies they had already accused Jesus of since he claimed to be the Son of God. In this context, it's likely to be the fact that they believe Jesus broke Sabbath regulations. Remember, they were the man-made regulations. But based on the fact that Jesus had committed blasphemy by claiming to be God's Son, the fact that Jesus had now broken the Sabbath, that's probably the reason that they're saying we know that this man is a sinner. That's their major premise. We know this man's a sinner. Why? Because he broke the Sabbath. Therefore, he cannot be from God. Right? That's how they're thinking. That's their logical syllogism. And yet we know that contradicts the word of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus is not a sinner. Hebrews 4.15 says, But we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. 1 Peter 1.19, but with the precious blood of Christ like the lamb without blemish or spot. 1 Peter 3.18, that it's the righteous for the unrighteous. So Jesus is the righteous one. He's without sin. 1 John 3.5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. So what the Pharisees are saying diametrically opposes all the scriptures that tell us that Jesus is not a sinner. Instead of giving in to the Pharisees' challenge here, this man's conviction stood firm. And the man who had been healed wasn't conceding to the Pharisees' claim that Jesus was a sinner. In fact, I think it would be more appropriate for us to understand that the formerly blind man is saying to whether or not Jesus had sinned is something he's unaware of. In other words, he doesn't go positive or negative on that one. He just says, I'm not, I'm not aware of that. I haven't had time to really consider that and come up with a conclusion on that. So I'm not going to speak to that, whether he's a sinner or not. But I will speak to this. I was blind, and now I see. And so this man has a deep conviction of that truth. His response ignored their biased conclusion and is declaring the uncomplicated truth. I was blind, but now I see. When your testimony is on the line, are you going to waver? When your testimony is on the line, are you going to stand firm? When the moment of truth comes, will you give glory to God? Will you affirm the deity of Christ? Will you declare the lordship of Christ over all things in your life and in your business and in your church and in your family? Do you have conviction and courage and fortitude to align with Christ over and against all of his enemies? This man did. We'll see here in a moment how he paid the price for that. The second thing we learned about this man's conviction is B, conviction has the courage to break from the pack. 
Verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered him, I told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. In these verses, the Pharisees are now teaming up on this man and trying to discover any other way to explain this away. The fact that, that Jesus had done this miracle, they just can't handle it. And at this point, the man who can now see gets a little agitated as he was requested for giving the details of his healing now that he had relayed the same information several times. But now we see something a little bit different in this man. Notice in verse 27 is where this man kind of turns the corner a little bit. And he says to them, do you also want to become his disciples? For the first time, we see him growing in his courage. We see him for the first time going on the offensive. He's tired of playing defense. And now he's saying, hey, do you guys want to be his disciple also? Hinting at the fact that maybe this man has now become or will soon be becoming a disciple of Christ. He's, he's considering that. <coughs> and he's challenging them. And asking them, are you guys going to do the same? Now, it could have been a little bit of a jab, you know, but I think that what's there is he's saying, basically, look, this guy, if this guy is Christ, we all need to be disciples of him. In fact, verse 38 shows us further progress. We'll look at it next time we're together on this text. But he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And so there's the conclusion of this man's faith. He opened his eyes. He could see a little wider and a little wider. And certainly by verse 38, we see that he believes in Christ and he worships him. But back here in verse 27, he just shows he's one step closer to diving in. This man is willing to leave the pack. He's willing to separate himself from the Pharisees. He's ready to put some distance between him and the establishment. The Pharisees claim Moses, but it looks like this man will be going with Jesus. Do you have the courage to do the same? You may have a Jewish background or a Roman Catholic upbringing. You may have had a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness influence. You could be from another faith entirely. You could be from a tradition of atheists. You might have even grown up in a nominal Christian home that claimed Christ, but Christ's presence was absent from your upbringing. Well, let me ask you this morning, are you ready to break from the pack? Are you ready to leave all that you've ever known and to step into a discipleship relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ where not only do you say, I believe in Christ, you say, I am his disciple. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm abandoning everything I've ever been taught except the truths of scripture that point us to Jesus. Another thing that we learned about this man's conviction is that conviction argues from the scripture. Check this out, verses 30 through 33. This man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now notice here, is interesting. This man begins to argue and we see conviction coming from the word of God. Up to this point, this man doesn't let on to what he really knows of the Old Testament. And then all of a sudden, we see that this man is a budding theologian. He has some pretty good bones to his theological development. When he says, you don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. This very well could be a hint to the fact that maybe this man was familiar with Isaiah 35.5 that said the Messiah, again, would open the eyes of a blind man. And then we see the man say the same thing in verse 31. We know that God does not listen to sinners, and that if God listens to them, could that be a hint that maybe this man is thinking of Psalm 66 or Proverbs 28? Psalm 66, 18, maybe this man knew this verse, I don't know for sure, but the way he's arguing tends to reveal to us that he knows something in the scripture that says something like this, Psalm 66, 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would have not listened. In other words, if the Lord God is answering Jesus' prayer, 
then Jesus cannot be cherishing iniquity in his heart. Because if God's going to answer his prayer to do a miraculous healing, then this man must be not a sinner, but a saint. Or consider Proverbs 28, 9. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Hear what he's saying? So if Jesus isn't obeying the law, like what you guys are saying, then his prayer should be an abomination. But Christ's prayer and his work is not an abomination. God is hearing his prayer and answering his prayer. Therefore, he must be true. Or look at verse 32 again. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Again, this is reminding us that, that, that this is pointing to uh, the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Only the Messiah could open blind eyes. Psalm 34, 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are toward their cry. Uh, Proverbs 15, 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Here's what the guy's arguing. If Jesus, this man, is healing and doing miracles that are messianic in nature, and if he's walking in step with God, then God's doing this through him. If he's not, then these things would not be happening. This is some pretty solid reasoning for a man who had never been to seminary. It's just a reminder that conviction doesn't come from another person or their opinions. Biblical conviction comes from the Bible. And I hope that you are spending time in God's word so that your convictions that you're developing as a believer in Christ don't come from our culture and they don't ultimately come from our families, and they don't even come from the church. Conviction comes from the Word of God. And when you see a man or a woman who's strong in the faith, it's because they spent time in the Bible. And when you see a man or a woman crumble when it comes to the kind of issues that we're facing in our society today, that's because they're not looking at the Bible, and they're following other people who are no longer following the Bible. And yet this man is following Old Testament truth and holding firm to the scripture in one way or another. Your convictions must ultimately come from the word of God. Only the Bible is inerrant. Only the Bible's infallible. Only the Bible's inspired by God and the scriptures must be our only authority. One last thought. Conviction is willing to face the consequences. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin. Would you teach us? and they cast him out. You knew it was coming. They had already said they were going to do it. And just because this man did what was right doesn't mean that anyone patted him on the back for it. Sometimes our reward will be in heaven and not in this world. And the Pharisees, again, accused this man of being born blind, possibly a reference to verse 2. Was it his sin or his parents' sin? So how is it that this man is now teaching the scholars? How could this man teach the experts? How could this man be right and everyone else be wrong? How? Because this man knows the truth and he's not afraid to say it. And so they cast him out. This man was excommunicated for doing the right thing. This man will now face an even harder time socially and economically. But you know what? I don't think this man cared. He could now see He's beginning not only to see physically, but he's beginning to see spiritually. This man is giving glory to God, not by agreeing with the Jews, but by becoming a disciple of Christ. Are you giving glory to God in a similar way? Not by lining up with what others want you to say about Christ, but lining up with Christ himself. Listen to the words of J.C. Ryle as we close on this passage. He writes this, quote, there is no kind of evidence so satisfactory as this to the heart of a real Christian. His knowledge may be small, his faith may be feeble, his doctrinal views may be at present confused and indistinct, but if Christ has really wrought a work of grace in his heart by the Spirit, he feels within him something that you cannot overthrow. I was dark and now I have light. I was afraid of God, and now I love him. I was fond of sin, and now I hate it. I was blind, and yet now I see. Let us never rest until we know and feel within us some real work of the Holy Ghost. 
Let us not be content with the name and the form of Christianity. Let us desire to have true experimental acquaintance with it. Ryle goes on, feelings no doubt are deceitful and are not everything in religion, but if we have no inward feelings about spiritual matters, it is a very bad sign. The hungry man eats and he feels strengthened. The thirsty man drinks and he feels refreshed. Surely the man who has within him the grace of God ought to be able to say, I feel its power. You know what Ryle is saying? This man may not have it all figured out, but he knows because of what Jesus said to him and did to him that while he was blind, he can now see. My friends, in the words of the newsboys who wrote that song, God's Not Dead, in the chorus they say, my God's not dead. He's surely alive. He's living on the inside, roaring like a lion. We've just seen that take place in this blind man. And my question is, is this taking place in you? A couple of questions as we get ready to go. Has there ever been an ounce of unbelief that has crept into your heart? Maybe you're here today and you got saved a long time ago. You've started to waver a little bit here and there in some of your convictions. Let me just remind you that unbelief has got to be put out of your heart. And as you come back to God and back to his word, you can build up the courage and the conviction that you need. Number two, do you see how fear is a thief robbing you of the joy of the work of God? Don't look so much at the consequences as you look at the Christ that we love and that we serve. Yes, there's going to be consequences, but don't let that paralyze us from being a witness for Christ. Is conviction, your last question, is conviction growing in your heart in a way that will help you be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord? Are you giving glory to God? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to just hear and see the man that was born blind who's now able Lord, to not only see physically, but to see spiritually, to be this great, incredible disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I pray that as we continue just to track with this narrative, to learn from this man, to look at the, the power of Christ, to look at the futility of the arguments of the Jews and even the incompleteness of the parents. God, I pray that we would just be encouraged today, that we want to stand with Christ that we don't want to give in to the world, that we don't want to be a half-hearted witness, that we want to give glory to God today by standing with Christ and proclaiming Christ and living for Christ, that we would be unashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation, not only for the Jew, but also for the Greek. God, thank you for turning the light on in the hearts of every believer in this room. And I pray for those who may not know Christ, that you would draw them in open their eyes that they may too may see the risen Savior. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.